Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research, trivia, and curios from our record collection to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you've reached the internet's finest podcast for music that wants to run its fingers through your hair. We're going to start this episode off, like always... With a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. Alright, I'm gonna go first today. I've got a quiz called Shitty Beatles. So what I did is I scoured the internet for some of the weirder Beatle tribute bands that are out there. And so I got about half real Beatle tribute bands, and about half that I just made up. So you just got to tell me if it's a real fake band or a fake, fake band. Or a Guided by Voices song. Yes. Some of them would really fit with that. Are you ready? Sure. The Abbey Road Dogs. Fake. That is fake. Beatallica. Real. That is real. (laughs) Beetlejuice. Fake. No, that one's real. Oh, man. Just only <laughs> said that because you were laughing. No. Beatloaf. Fake. <laughs> yeah, that one's fake. It's a good be- one, though. Beautiful image, though. Well, depends on how you look at it, I guess. <laughs> the Better Beatles. Real. That is real. Very good. The Blue Weenies. Real. Nope, that's one I made up. Fake. Okay. The Brittles. Fake. That is fake. I made that one up. Bootleg Beatles. Real. That one's real. The cast of Beatlemania. Real. Absolutely. The Dung Beatles. Fake. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Rubber soldiers. Real. That is real. The fab foe. Fake. Nope, that one's real. That one's real. Okay. Let it bleedle. Fake. <laughs> yeah, I made that one up. I like okay. that one. It's pretty good. A Stones Beatles cover band. It seems plausible, right? It really does. Let yeah. it bleedle. All right. The mop top crop. Real. No, that one's fake. Oh, God. It just seemed beyond you. Or beneath you. I'm not sure. <laughs> the Night Trippers. That's a good name. Real. No, I made that one up, too. The Punkles. Fake. That one's real. Wow. They're like a Ramones Beatles cover band. Okay. Ringo Stargazers. Fake. That one's fake. Yellow Dub Marine. <laughs> fake. No, that one's real. No, oh, it they, sounded real until you started. Do, I know, I'm sorry. I will, I've got to ignore you. Yeah, that's that's it, though. That's my quiz. That's really good. I think I did pretty well. You overall. did really good. I only faked you out when I started laughing because the names were so stupid. All right. I've got the audio round tonight, and I do not have a name for it. I'm going to play seven clips of songs, and what I would like to have you do, please, is name the artist, mm -hmm. the song title, okay. and the theme that ties them all together. All right. SAT test. Song artist theme. That's it. Yes. All right. Here we go. Track one. <laughs> Track two. I love the words you wrote to me, but that was bloody yesterday. I can't survive on what you send every time you need a friend. Track three. There's nothing good. You laid in bed talking about getting out. Backing up. Track four. Track five. Track six. Track seven. All right. How do you think you did? I actually feel pretty good about this one. I know most of the songs. 
And I've got a pretty good idea on the theme, too, so. Good. I didn't really throw in anything that was too deep of a cut. Nope. Pretty straightforward for music people, I think. But we'll play them again at the end for anybody who needs a second go-around. Absolutely. Or you could pause at any point as long as you, you know, eventually hit play again. <laughs> let's, not, let's not kill any momentum we got going yet. I mean, beyond just our normal momentum-killing prowess. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Don't pause and listen again. That would be cheating, and you're not cheaters, are you? No. No cheaters listen to this podcast. All right. I think it's time to move along. In the following turntable talk, we have a lot of jokes at the expense of Ringo Starr. Please note, we did this because it was fun to do, and it was low-hanging fruit, not because we actually believe Ringo to be a knuckle-dragging dolt who can't play drums. We love Ringo, and he's just plain fun to tease. We hope the jokes don't distract too much from the information, but really, once we started, we were unable to stop ourselves. And... One more qualifier is that those jokes are mostly really terrible, but if you've listened to this podcast in the past, you know that we love terrible jokes. And now it's time for us to ring go for it. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind At an L.A. cafe in 1962, hotshot assistant record man and future U.S. Olympic slalom team reject, Salvatore Philip Bono, feeling incredibly smug in his camel fur vest, sauntered up to the gorgeous high school dropout who would eventually be his musical soulmate, wife, and mother to his child, and proceeded to hit on her friend who he found more attractive. Eventually, Sonny turned his attention to Sherilyn Sarkeesian, and the two developed an odd platonic relationship. The 28-year-old Bono let the 16-year-old actress wannabe stay at his place after she got kicked out by her roommates, but she had to agree to do all his chores. This relationship, that clearly started very strange, soon developed into something romantic, and still very strange. Sonny would work to get his live-in maid-come-girlfriend work as a backup singer for his boss, the totally stable genius Phil Spector. She sang behind the Ronettes, the Righteous Brothers, the Crystals, and Darlene Love. Bono kept pushing his boss to let his young lady friend take center stage. Spector bristled, but then he had an idea. In 1964, a couple of guys Spectre kept in his stable of songwriters had brought him a song that he hated, called Ringo I Love You. The song was a clear attempt at a cash grab, preying on the Beatlemania that was sweeping the country. Spectre thought it would be a great laugh to finally give his assistant's girlfriend a chance to shine. Bono was fairly savvy in the record business at this point, and also understood that this was some lightweight fluff but he encouraged Sherilyn to do the song all the same, but to also form a stage name to preserve a latter chance at 
actually having a legit singing career. She chose the all-American-sounding Bonnie Jo Mason. Also, Spectre wasn't about to have any foreign-sounding names on his records. Spectre held back the Wrecking Crew and sent in a junior varsity beat group that he probably had stashed in some sort of freezing dungeon. Cher gave the track a good go and sang the song about an unhealthy obsession about America's favorite mediocre drummer with as much pizzazz as she could muster. unforgettable rock song full of yeah yeah yeahs and primal desires to run fingers through Ringo's sludgy quaff was relegated to subsidiary label Annette Records that Spectre kept around primarily as a tax write-off for his more lucrative Phillies label. Spectre took writing and production credit, even though he didn't seem to have anything to do with either, and he also made sure to not have his name on the label. Neither Sonny nor Cher seemed to care much for the song either. The song, which was already bound for failure, was undoubtedly doomed by radio stations that refused to play the record. Several prominent DJs heard this Bonnie Jo Mason's low husky Tom Jones-like voice and assumed, despite it clearly stating, I want to be your only girl, that this was some sort of homosexual stalker owed to the drummer. This was 25 years before Cher actually started performing gay anthems. As the song bombed, the relationship between Bono and Spectre was deteriorating. Sonny finally broke out of the prison wall of sound to focus on his and Cher's career before thrusting their uncomfortable relationship dynamics on the youth of America and rising to international fame. The two writers of Ringo I Love You, Pete Anders and Vinnie Poncia, would, somewhat ironically, go on to help co-write Ringo's 70s songs. However, most songwriters who were dealing in Beatles' exploitation songs were not nearly as lucky. None of these one-off, cash-grab Beatle rip-offs was remotely close to being a success. Unless you count the monkeys. But that didn't stop these singles from being made. Hundreds of songs about the world's biggest band, but not by the world's biggest band, were issued by no-name artists on tiny fly-by-night labels. An unimaginable amount of these dismal mop-top dedications tried to scrape the bottom of the barrel of Beatlemania bucks. And while the whole band received an unending amount of adulation from the masses of music makers, there was one member who had an almost metaphysical magnetism for bad musicians, Mr. Ringo Starr. In this episode, we are going to explore America's jingoism for Ringoism, the ladies who love the goofball percussionist and the men who love to hate him, 
odes to the drummer who is better than the best, or at least better than Pete Best. And the scores of singers who can't possibly imagine a better subject matter than those shaggy locks and that gomer pile grin. Listening to this music, it don't come easy. But we're going to brave the bewildering and back-breaking Beatlemania bacchanalia to bring you a bounty of the best bedeviling Beatle bauble by bewitched Beatle buffs. In this episode, Ringo Songs. Ringo, Ringo, Ringo Star, how I wonder what No one could have fully anticipated the mop-topped cultural tsunami that engulfed the youth of America in 1964 after Ed Sullivan. Beatlemania was both a product of and a driving force in a huge social and musical shift, but also a financial one, demonstrated by the ferocious buying power of the counterculture. The Beatles were paid about ten grand for their three Sullivan spots starting in February 1964, but by the end of the year, they had made $25 million, the equivalent of $188 million today. That's a lot of pairs of Beetle boots. Clearly, what the Beatles lacked in songsmithing, they made up for in merchandising. You'd be hard-pressed to find a household item that you couldn't buy as an officially licensed Beetle product, or byproduct. Beyond the normal kid stuff like games, toys, instruments, caboodle kits, costumes, and clothes... There was also Beetle shampoo, lariat ties, glue, thimbles, talcum powder, mothballs, pantyhose, cellophane tape, cake toppers, airbeds, pom-poms, and desecrated doll parts. If it didn't have a Beatles face on it, it was shit. Even if it was George's face. Truly, the Beatles merch explosion was madness. Factories were making 35,000 Beatles wigs per day and a bakery could sell 100,000 edible Ringos in under 24 hours. One company was paid to rush out 10 million licorice records. And while Epstein was taking 25% and laughing all the way to the bank, an interesting black market opened up to intrepid bootleggers wanting to take their own piece of the pie. The honey pie. It was almost impossible to keep up with what was a legitimate Beatles product and what was a knockoff. Sometimes a simple switch of a A to an E, going for the regular spelling of Beatle, was enough to sell the product with no obligation to the band. Some huckster just sold empty cans and called it Beetle Breath. My can smelt of baked beans and beef eater gin, so I think I scored a Ringo. Another salesman cut up gently soiled sheets into small squares and sold them as officially being slept on by a Beetle. My sheet smelt of baked beans and beef eater gin, so... Another Ringo. The potential for Beatlemania's creepy intersection of materialism and obsession was not lost on the record labels. Suddenly, hundreds of Beatle-adjacent records were being released as quickly as they could get recorded and pressed. An insanely huge amount of these novelty records were produced mostly between 63 and 66. These weren't cover records, but rather records about the Beatles and about Beatlemania itself. These records came in a number of strange subgenres, many of which are worth their own turntable talk.
For example, the Beatle Imposter Records. These are bands that try to emulate the Beatles as near as possible without getting sued. These imposters used names, logos, and images that were close enough to the real deal that it might fool someone's mom into buying it for their kid from the discount rack. Bands' names often were takeoffs on Beat, Beatles, Bugs, and Liverpool. Stuff like The Beagles, The Beats, The Bugs, The Grasshoppers, The Liverpool Beats, etc. The best story of these fake Beatles bands was that of a bar band called the Ardells, who renamed themselves the American Beatles, and then booked a tour of South America without telling anyone there they weren't the genuine English guys. When they landed in Buenos Aires, there was a legitimate hard day's night level of madness, which quickly ended when they played their first show and it became quite apparent that these guys were not the real McCoy. They didn't look much like them, they couldn't sing like them, and the drummer was actually on rhythm. Argentina had plenty to cry about that time. The Sham Band's performance was actually a pretty important cultural moment in Argentina, even if the streets were flooded with the tears of girls who missed their chance to gaze at Paul. And you have a similar subgenre of girl tribute bands. The Beatle Buddies, the Beatlettes, and the Boodles were the best of the bunch. These groups often had fun answer songs like, I'll Let You Hold My Hand. Or the less popular answer song, Ticket to Ride, Me. And when you touch me, hold me. Some artists, mostly country guys, recorded songs that were neutral, if not puzzled, observations like a dutiful anthropologist carefully studying a strange new society of hair-worshipping screechers. Here's Bill Clifton's talking blue song, Beetle Crazy. When I came to Britain just a little while back with my rawhide jacket and my ten-gallon hat, things were quiet, not much going on, no riots or nothing. And the Beatles came along, put up the crash barriers, take a deep breath, run for cover. No need to tell you what happened to these boys. They thought up a sound, some say a noise. It ain't too sweet, it ain't too rough, but it's right for the times. Times are tough. 
ain't a beetle, that is. Guess they ain't doing so bad. Our second favorite Beatles subgenre is the anti-Beatle song, a sizable selection of songs that were angrily reacting to the waves of Beatle love that ranged from out-of-touch grouchiness to full-on antagonistic rage. They involve a lot of cuckolded dudes and insecticide jokes. Here's one of the best, The Exterminator's Beetle Bomb. And then there is the one song subgenre of the bigger than Beatles brag, solely led by Brad Berwick and his song, I'm Better Than the Beatles. In this one song, he puts those pesky British brats in their place with the sheer raw power of his Jesus-enhanced talent. Prepare to break all your Buttles records in half as you hear real music for the first time, you sheeple. Of course, the lion's share of Beatles' novelty records were simply songs about how damn great the Beatles were and how much the girls wanted to jump their Beatle bones. They were formulaic, flimsy fun, and mostly forgettable. But among the deluge of hormonal dog whistling, there's one band member that is far and away the focus of the most of these strange, obsessive tribute songs. Ringo was America's Goldilocks Beatle. John was too smart. Paul was too cute. George was too ignorable. Ringo was just right. With his non-threatening level of intellect, constant confusion, poor handle on proper English language, and that tinge of existential dread, this was someone that America's youth could understand. A 1964 Saturday Evening Post explains, Ringo is the one that some observers have compared to Harpo Marx. He has bright blue eyes that remind one of a child looking through a window, although he sometimes deliberately crosses them as he sits dumbly at the drums, playing his corny 4-4 beat. The most popular of the Beatles in America, he evokes paroxysms of teenage shrieks everywhere by a mere turn of his head, a motion which sends his brown spaniel hair flying. This strange affinity for the happy-go-lucky drummer was certainly acknowledged by the mechanism that wanted to churn out any product that lovelorn co-eds might throw their parents' money at. Ringo was the blueprint. He had the most memorable name. He had the simplest personality to mimic. He was the most beetle of the Beatles. The single best-selling piece of Beatles merchandise in 1964 was the 
I love Ringo lapel pin. He was a cash cow. So it is no surprise that he was the most inspirational figure for the myriad of songs written about the Beatles. By far, the vast majority of Ringo novelty songs came from female singers who spent two and a half minutes swooning and occasionally stalking the famous drummer. Taken as a whole, they are sort of overwhelming without a ton of variation in the style or themes. They often have little Beatle musical tropes like yeah, 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 or mentions of Beatle song lyrics. Almost all of them mention Ringo's hair. There's a darkness under all this saccharine sweetness, knowing that these bands are engaging in some strange idol worship with an idea of a person more than an actual person. Brace yourself, here comes a wave of Ringo tunes. Let's begin with the starlet song Ringo, which starts off sounding like the ladies won't get much past singing the word Ringo until they come at you with the lyric, the strings of my heart go zingo, whoop, and then knock it out of the park singing, he's like no other boy I love because his hair is longer than mine. A true flagship of the genre. Ringo, Ringo, smile for me, my Ringo, Marlene Terry's Ringo Ringo is twice the amount of Ringo than the Starlet's Ringo. At one point, Darlene is singing Ringo, and that her backup singers are also singing Ringo, creating an unsettling Ringo reverberation echo effect. It's what I imagine riding in the Large Hadron Collider is like, with the possibility of dark matter composed entirely of the word Ringo tearing open a black hole and sucking me through. The Ringo Passion is slowed down a little bit with The Rainbow's My Ringo, which is the story of sending Ringo rings, like he's Sonic the Hedgehog. There's an early Beach Boy sheen to the production, but off, as if the track was produced by Brian Wilson's body with Ringo Starr's brain. So, just a body. Made of gold That's your favorite 
the more sensual and sinister Ringo songs is the garage rocker Ringo Boy by Dory Payton. One of the best, really. I feel like Dory might have the best chance of getting her hands on Ringo's liver pud. Will you send me a lock of hair, Ringo Boy, Ringo Boy? Will you send me a lock of hair, darling Ringo? Do anything for you Be so faithful and so true You're a fine boy I'll never want another Veronica Lee with the Monique's Ringo Did It gives a little air to the other three lesser Beatles before fully turning to the greatness that is Ringo. And if you're wondering what Ringo did in this song, let's just say, poor Veronica doesn't have a heart no more. Investigate that disgrace land. Accompanied by a jaunty banjo riff, the Whippets, no relation to the huffing drug sensation, might be the catchiest of all these tracks. It sounds like it might just march itself off a cliff, taking me gleefully with it. A lesson in spelling, the song R is for Ringo by Tina Ferrer is, best as I can tell, not a puppet record, but damn if it shouldn't be. Fret not, listeners. We have a puppet Ringo song coming up. Woof. Song by the weekends, not the weekend, Ringo, ends with a singer talking about her own death because Ringo doesn't know she exists and therefore won't pleasure her, which is a bit of a dark turn for this kind of song. This might be a good time to talk with her about managing expectations. Much like George Martin has to do with Ringo's drumming. Love me, love me good. 
Pay Winter's rare single, Ringo, I Wanna Know Your Secret, is a pretty silly answer song. She starts by wanting to know the secret and ends by saying that she knows his secret, but she never actually tells us what his secret is. Give us the goods, Pay. Is it that he's been air drumming this whole time? Or did Ringo eat that baby? What a MacGuffin. I wanna know how much you really love me. Please let me know how much you really care. Ringo, yes, I'd love to know your secret. I would promise not to tell. Oh, no, no. Ringo, won't you whisper in my ear? Say the words I want to hear. The only thing more desperate than a teeny bopper's undying dedication is a teeny bopper's ability to quickly evacuate all hope. There were a couple songs that were practically dirges in comparison to the mood of the other Ringo novelties because they specifically dealt with Ringo's unexpected marriage to local Liverpool lovely Maureen Cox. The 1965 wedding was low-key, both to protect Ringo's image and because the 18-year-old Cox was already pregnant. When news broke, many of Ringo's not-so-secret admirers were not happy. One of them was Peggy Valentine, who also happened to be one of the first female British music critics. Her only single, I Want to Kiss Ringo Goodbye, is equally sad and angry. Like Ringo pushing a pool door. and the Chicklets take a different approach by directly addressing Ringo's young bride in the song Treat Him Tender, Marine, Now That Ringo Belongs to You. It comes off as a sort of threat, but in a sweet way. Like we might break your legs, but we'll still get you a nice fondue set as a wedding present because Ringo deserves all the melted cheese his heart desires. Dear Maureen, now that Ringo belongs to you, Love him always, as we would do. Treat him tender, Maureen. You're the luckiest girl we know. Hope you know what we mean. Hope you understand that we're so Sometimes, we're just worried about Ringo's well-being, as is the case with the Bon Bon song, What's Wrong with Ringo? At first, the singer frets that Ringo has stopped singing and stopped pretending to drum, but then her concern turns inward 
to the fact that Ringo is not in love with her. And she presents herself to Ringo as a simple solution to his seasonal affective disorder. The internet claims that the bonbons might have actually been an early iteration of the Shangri-Las, which looks to be total bullshit, but if I were her motorcycle-riding boyfriend, I wouldn't take any chances. It wasn't just lovelorn ladies getting into the Ringo novelty action. A few songs from Jilted Boyfriends sung of the scorn of getting their significant other wrangled by Ringo. The lone single by Doug and chug. Ringo comes to town, laments how Ringo is walking their special lady down the aisle, making their freshly purchased wedding ring worthless. Should have kept the receipt there, chug. A masterfully named Dick Lord had a fantastic song called Like Ringo, which mumbles along like Dylan doing a spaghetti western theme. Ringo doesn't physically steal away Dick's lady, but the Beatles' essence sucks the life out of his girl, and she spends all her time with her records and fantasizing about the drummer, causing the narrator to grow his hair out, slowly becoming a Ringo himself. The Dick Lord of the Ringos. Until the surprise ending. I let my hair grow long like his, pretending I was in showbiz. They called my mother up to school, they said I must have blown my cool. They said your son is acting bad, he thinks he is the English lad. But I didn't care about disgrace, if only I could take the place of Ringo. 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 Then came the night I can't forget, the night when once again we met. And as I looked to my surprise, I saw the tears come to her eyes. She said a foolish fling had passed, and now I knew the truth at last. Cause between her sighs, her sobs, her moans, she said she loved the Rolling Stones, not Ringo. In a bit of 1964 Ringo kismet, Starr wasn't the only Ringo who was tearing up the charts. Canadian actor and country singer Lorne Green took a rollicking story song called Ringo, about an outlaw named Johnny Ringo, all the way to number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. The song also hit number one in Canada, 
but they use the metric system, so that's probably like 10 or something. Anyways, a couple intrepid novelty songsmiths saw a damned beautiful opportunity. Months later, a rock vocalist named Larry Finnegan, most known for the single Dear One, released a parody song called The Other Ringo that was so bad it would make Weird Al mournfully weep urine. They say he came from the wrong side of town And everybody laughed when he came around But ain't nobody ever put him down, not Ringo When I grow up to be a man I'm gonna be a drummer in a famous band And play just as good as anybody can, said Ringo But they laughed and said, if you want fame The first thing you better do is change your name And he smiled and said, thanks just the same But it's Ringo Don Bowman doubled down on the Beatleiness and violence with his version of the Ringo parody called The Other Ringo. For those keeping score at home, this Ringo song, The Other Ringo, is a Ringo parody cover of another Ringo song, The Other Ringo, a Ringo parody cover of another Ringo song, Ringo, a Ringo song about a different Ringo. Found him in the gutter with a gash in his head. Thought he was dead, but he is alive instead. He is playing his drums, the country music fan. Snuck up behind with a brick in his hand. Cut looked bad, so I combed down his hair. That night I created there Ringo. The wound healed fast, I'm proud to say. Locked his hair, combed down that way. Had to be cut just a little in front. He kept swinging, missing, falling through his drums. Liked it so well he found three other guys. Wore their hair all down in their eyes like Ringo. There's one more tangentially related Ringo Ringo story that is worth sharing. Around 1965, a guy who gave himself the handle Elvis Don Ringo walked into Nashville's Globe Recording Studio with a poem and a prayer and a voice that would make Florence Foster Jenkins gag. Globe Studios did some legit business, but mostly made its money by suckering people into recording their own song poems. No one could have quite anticipated the bone-twisting cowboy stylings of EDR when recording this track, I'm the Real Ringo. That sheriff, Alabama Bonanza, put out the word that the day would soon come when I'd be looking down his gun barrel. Funny thing, he was right. But the night I was looking down his gun barrel, the fool didn't even know it. He was standing at the edge of my sleeping blanket on the Big Springs Oak Tree. The sheriff didn't know I trained myself to sleep with one eye might open. <laughs> Woo-wee! He cocked his gun, and with my hand on my gun, under my hat, I shot his six-shooter plumb out of his hand. Woo-wee! That's the last time anybody sneaked up on Ringo. Brian the real Ringo, what is the Pegos, and what's the Babolese? The song was definitely more in the spirit of Lauren Green than the British drummer. But if the Beatle boot fits... Anyway, the song was mercifully lost to time. Until it wasn't. Eventually a copy made it to Irwin Chusid, And then, eventually, 
to Hermit of Mink Hollow himself, Todd Rundgren, who was drumming for Ringo's band at the time. He played it for his Beatle boss, who absolutely fell in love with it. Apparently, he spent the tour singing, I'm the real Ringo. With all this Ringo Western talk, it would be a good time to mention that you should listen to our last episode about the music of Spaghetti Westerns to hear all about Ringo Starr's Spaghetti Western appearance. After a decade of acting like he could play the drums, you'd think this would be a perfect opportunity for him. There are a couple of songs that we are calling Ringo Apologist Tunes, songs that work very hard to fool you into thinking that Ringo is a competent drummer a tactic the Beatles would later employ with their song, The End on Abbey Road. The first of these pro-Ringo tracks is by Neil Shepard, with his succinctly titled 1965 garage pop bop non-hit, You Can't Go Far Without a Guitar Unless You're Ringo Star." Much more puzzling was Ella Fitzgerald Ringo Beat, also released in 1965 on Verve Records. The fading queen of jazz was said to have written the song after being inspired by her 16-year-old son's rock and roll drumming. The people have alluded that she was actually acutely aware of the popularity of Ringo and desperately looking for a hit even with a novelty at this point. Whatever her reason, the song is really fun and miles better than most Ringo songs. Starts that beat. The kids start screaming and stomping their feet. It's the younger generation's kind of rhythm. So don't be a creep. Come on and get with them. It's the Ringo beat. For a while, there was a ubiquitous feeling that Ringo was the only balm that could help America's chap burns. Following a full-fledged frenzy from his slapstick star turn in Hard Day's Night, many Beatles fans, most far too young to vote, started a serious campaign for Ringo to be the next United States president, despite the fact that he was British and younger than 35. The main campaign selling point was that Ringo was an ideal candidate because he doesn't talk about the war. Not the first or last time, that ignorance was a legitimate selling point of a candidate. The movement was highly organized with merchandise and several counter-rallies during political rallies of non-rockstar candidates. About a dozen teenage girls' piercing screams and homemade signs drew some attention away from the Republican National Convention in 1964. Prior to being knighted, assassin Han Han claimed to have almost had his vote swayed to Star's camp. 
A few weeks later, there was another Ringo rally a block away from a bigger anti-Goldwater rally, which mostly involved singing happy birthday to their favorite drummer. And after that, they also found time to sing a song to Ringo. The political party received enough attention to even draw a reaction from the Fab Four. Ringo, of course, loved the idea. The other members reluctantly said that they would vote for him, with the caveat that he had to admit to not having played drums on the White Album. The best interaction about the topic came from an L.A. press conference where Ringo clearly had no idea George and John were making fun of him. Content warning for Bad Beetle impression. The interviewer asked, Ringo, would you nominate the others as part of your cabinet? Ringo? Well, I'd have to, wouldn't I? George? I could be the door. Ringo? I'd have George as the treasurer. John? I could be the cupboard. Ringo? He looks after the money. The ineligible drummer got a few write-in votes, but ultimately America had to settle for electing Lyndon Johnson, who had nicknamed his very well-known penis Ringo. The whole shenanigan resulted in a fairly popular novelty song called Ringo for President. Here's a clip of the original version by the Young World Singers. There's also an inexplicable cover by Australian comedy singer Rolf Harris. Ringo for president! Rolf Harris also sang a song called Timey Kangaroo Down Sport with the Beatles sometime in 1964 during a visit to the BBC. Of course, Mr. Starkey makes an appearance in that supposedly fun song, too, when it is mentioned that Ringo uses a dead Aussie tanned hide as a drumskin, which is ridiculous. Everyone knows that Ringo only uses real Liverpudlian flesh for his kit, after it's been chewed for him by Beetle John. That's it. And with his very last gasp, he says, Tan me hide when death comes, chums. <coughs> oh dear. Tan me hide when death comes, 
So we tanned his hide when he died, Clyde and the Ringo's got it on his drums. All together now, time the kangaroo down, spot. Time the kangaroo down, time the kangaroo down, time the kangaroo down. Ringo ho ho, there's a Starkey above the manger tonight. And if you're anything like my family, nothing says the holidays like warming yourself by the Yule log, guzzling down mulled wine, and singing along to your favorite Ringo carols. Decades before the Jingle Cats would make a mastery out of maddening Noels, a girl group from Cleveland, Three Blind Mice, unleashed Ringo bells on the earth. With the dispassionate intensity of the Chipmunkettes, you truly wonder what those ladies mean when they threaten to Ringo all the way. Apparently, lots of tweens wanted to come down and find a Ringo kidnapped and wrapped under their tree. He was the original Tickle Me Elmo, with only a little less schooling. Here is Christine Hunter's Santa Bring Me Ringo, a plea to the jolly old elf to deliver the drummer promptly so she could touch his hair. Arrangement was by none other than Angelo Baldalamente, which makes sense because the plot of the song is far darker than anything David Lynch could dream up. That's not creepy enough for you perverts? Okay, well here's the damn puppet version of that same song by noted British dummy Titch. Finding puppet Ringo songs means we are approaching event horizon of this podcast. Once we obtain a Zamrock track by a puppet cult about a Waffle House Leonard Nimoy sighting, the universe will finally, and thankfully, implode. Oh, quackers, not you, you daft duck. You're on the other side of the record, aren't you? Ah. Well, go and get ready then. Uh-uh. Yeah, ta-ta. Where's Ria? Here, Titch. Right, now, I'll show you how this song goes. I'll start it off and you can join in. Right, now, here we go. <laughs> this is it, then. <coughs> Santa, please, Santa. I don't want a thing. No, just bring me, bring me, ring home. I want a holly as If you spent as many days as we have wondering what Ringo would look like as a reindeer, Gary Ferrier has your answer, with his inventively titled track, Ringo Deer. Truthfully, after one of Ringo's spiked eggnog benders, his legendary nose does glow red far brighter than Rudolph's. Just take a look at any picture of him from 1969 to 1987. 
Tiny bells around his feet, and when he runs, he rings a beat. Ring along, Ringo, Santa yells, and the deer all cheer when they hear those bells. Ringo, 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 dear, a ring along, Ringo, Ringo, dear, a Ringo, 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 dear. He's with Santa Claus this year. Ringo, 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 dear, a ring along, Ringo, Ringo, dear, Ringo, Ringo. The next category is Bizarro Ringo, with tracks that can only be grouped by their uncategorizationalness. There's a stupid little comedy novelty album called It's a Beatles World by Fisher and Marks that has several vapid digs at the cuckoo Beatles expense, including this song, which you can probably guess the title. so low to take vapid digs at the Beatles. Pfft, what assholes. Dawes Butler, the voice of laid-back Huckleberry Hound, took a flyer with Bingo Ringo, which was yet another parody of Lauren Green's Ringo. Too bad it wasn't a duet with Powerful Pierre. Now that would be something. his hat and smiled a smile, combed his hair in a different style, ran to the drums and played eight bars, t'other three then grabbed guitars. And then at last I understood that I'd been put on, but real good, by Ringo. Ringo! Then there was the failed dance craze, or maybe yoga pose, Ringo's dog by a band called The Cyclones. Historians have tried to wipe it off the face of the planet, but one scratchy copy remains. There are a couple strange Ringo-dedicated instrumentals. The first is called Minuet for Ringo, and it's by Wildman drummer Viv Prince after he got muscled out of the pretty things for being a bit too nuts after regular inebriation, starting fires on stage, pulling around a dead crayfish on a string, and being a Ringo fan. The song is not nearly as fun as Walking a Deceased Crawdad.
much better song is the surf rock raver by the motions called Beatles Drums, in which the only vocals are the band shouting Ringo, a la Wipeout or Tequila. Come to think of it, the biker bar scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a pretty solid analogy for Ringo's career if you also include Pee-wee's eventual arrest at a porno theater. Finally, there is this novelty song that is probably the first sampling of the Beatles on record. We didn't research that at all and have no interest in justifying the statement, but we have a feeling. This horror show is called Ringo's Doctor, and it's by Rex Miller. We refuse to play that part where he tells the beguiled mop top to turn his head and cough. Ringo, so nice to see you, old boy. Time for your shots? <laughs> you seem to be nervous, are you? Oh, yeah. Oh, very nervous? Oh, yeah. Well, in that case, perhaps you'd prefer to come back and see me tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll miss you. Oh, well, then you need something. What is it, old chap? I need a shot of rhythm and blues. That's not precisely the type of shot I had in mind. However, we could give you some medicine. What would you like? A taste of honey. <laughs> you are a bit of a clown, Ringo. On top of all this madness, there was at least a half dozen more Ringo songs out there that we just couldn't find. I can only imagine how a great a song like Where Did Ringo Go by the Beetlebugs? A question no one has asked, ever. <laughs> Or Ringo's Jerk by Ron Ringo would sound. And there's even another seasonal track, I Want Ringo for Christmas, that is allegedly an inspiration for the infamous gremlin scene where Phoebe Cates talks about her Santa dad burning to death lodged in the chimney. Same idea, but with Ringo. Joey in the classics Ringo's Walk is supposed to be a pretty great surf track from an early Hawaiian rock label, Teen Records. There are probably tons of weird song poems about Ringo, whose uncomfortable weirdness would put these puppy love songs to shame. We know for a fact that Mr. Song Poem himself, Rod Rogers, Rod Keith, did one called Go Go Ringo Baby. But there was only one known copy on earth, and that guy did not answer my Discogs message. But the one that truly got away, for me, was a song called Ringo Dingo by The Tributes. I'm not sure exactly what happens in that song, but I am certain that some baby's getting taken. Though Ringo was by far the most popular Beatle, and the novelty market demonstrated this very clearly, there were definitely plenty of other Beatle-specific songs. They aren't nearly as good, bad as the Ringo stuff, but here's a couple that are particularly great. The most notorious Lennon song was recorded by future Oscar-winning coal miner's daughter, Sissy Spacek. At 18, Spacek left her Quitman, Texas home to try to make it as a pop singer in New York City. After bopping around Greenwich Village and 
doing a few ad jingles, she finally got a chance to record her debut single under the moniker Rainbow. The song she chose to launch her career with was, naturally, a song that took aim at the best-known rock star in the world. The song contained lyrics that aligned with SpaceX frustration with the bespeckled beetle big-dogging Jesus and dumping his guru, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. But those infractions were nothing compared to the release of Unfinished Music No. 1, Two Virgins, which famously left nothing to imagine. The prominent revelation of Lennon's John and Yoko's Oh No's left the young Texas singer aghast and truly proved to be the straw that broke the walrus's back. The 1968 single, John, You've Gone Too Far This Time, is a really bad broken Baroque pop song that unloads on the disrobed Liverpudlian's pud. Now I gaze in all before that picture my mind retires to the place it was before you came I love the things you showed me up till now, John But since that picture, I don't think my love will be the same John, I love you The song swung lower on the charts than John Lennon's Shaved Fish, and Rainbow's career was doused with pig's blood before it could start. SpaceX started hanging out at Warhol's factory and took an interest in acting, which probably was the better choice. And it's unlikely that she ever had to see Warhol's dick. Now, as far as Paul, sure you had your typically doe-eyed lovey-dovey tripe, but where it gets really interesting is with a strange handful of Paul is Dead novelty songs that rose from the unknown in the late 60s. We're going to put on a black carnation and take off our shoes to cross the road barefoot on a brief tour to play a few of these crazy Paul is Dead exploitation songs. No, it doesn't have anything to do with Ringo, but we figure, what the hell? If you made it this far into the episode, you probably have nothing to lose. That may even be why you started the episode in the first place. Conspiracy novelty is a difficult art form to master, but one can look to the band Mystery Tour's 1969 Ballad of Paul as the archetype. The singer, who no doubt loves to watch chemtrails while lying on a totally flat earth in his MK Ultra shirt, lays out the highlights of Paul's car crash, the clues, and his supplantication by a weird-eared doppelganger. Never made the paper Didn't read it in the news But it's right there for you to find In several hidden clues From Sergeant Pepper to Abbey Road They led us on a chase Just where to look, it all falls into place. An argument, an accident, an unseen trap. 
Zacharias and the tree people speak of the depths of sadness and shame of those left behind who have to live in the shadow of the hoax in their fantastically funky We're All Paul Bearers. Get it? Paul Bearers? Jose Feliciano wasn't too blind to see right through the Beatles' sinister ruse. He took on the very inconspicuous pseudonym of Werbly Finster to record this single called So Long, Paul. I heard the radio the other day. I heard something that blew my mind. It was something that I didn't even believe at all. The news concerned itself with a young man. After the rumors of Paul's 1966 demise started circulating college campuses, Terry Knight was there to comfort us with the song St. Paul, about Paul tripping on LSD in heaven, which might explain the chorus of angels who sing like the Muppets. The last in this Paul is Dead subgenre is an entry by a band called Billy Shears and the All-Americans. This song is a conspiracy within a conspiracy, with the vocalist desperately looking for the real Paul, who actually faked his death to be free from the repressive chains of Brian Epstein. Just what we needed. Another fucking Epstein conspiracy. Cold and lonely stone Are you getting older Or just getting colder Brother Paul we're 
And alas, there were basically no George songs. There was probably more interest in Mal Evans' alarm clock. Proving the timelessness of the world's most famous drummer, caveman, and island of Sodor's local tosspot, there is a whole slew of Ringo the Next Generation songs. The Young Fresh Fellows, The Happy Mondays, Guided by Voices, Scorpions, Stereo Total, Ice Cube, Morrissey, the Dead Milkman, Public Enemy, Brad Paisley, LL Cool J, Jens Lakeman, Joe Ely, and Sloan all give a nod to the Eeyore of the Beatles in song. Ringo's lovable, grounded, self-deprecating personality persists, proving once and for all you don't have to know how to drum to become the world's best drummer. Just like we have proven that you don't have to know how to podcast to put out the world's third best podcast about Ringo fan songs. Did you look at the prices of any of these Ringo singles? No, I didn't. I don't know how scarce they are or how much they cost. What did you find out? When I was looking looking through Discog and stuff, trying to research, they're really not very expensive. I don't think anybody cares about them. Most of the ones that we talked about are, you know, five, ten bucks. So if you're looking for a niche collecting market, ring, go for it. All right, Joe, just for shits and giggles, I just did a word find for the word Ringo in this uh, turntable talk. I want you to guess how many times that officially, not with all our side conversations, we said Ringo in this turntable talk. Forty-two. 165. 165. 165 Ringos. The other thing that we couldn't find that we really wanted to was um, there's apparently a couple collections of like Beatlemania songs from Russia. That's called The Evil Empire Sings Beatles. You can get the CD on eBay for $12 plus $12 shipping. From Russia? From Russia, I believe, yeah. With love. There's a ton of different bootlegs and resources about all these novelty songs. I'll put up a few websites on our webpage in case you want to dig in and find some of them. They can be a lot of fun. Like most things that we research, I really enjoy it for the first few days of researching. And then, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear another Ringo novelty song for, for a long time. All right, you want to play some songs? Yeah, I really do. All right, I'm going to Ringo first tonight, and I'm going to play a song called Beatles or Stones by Jesco's. This morning, the 
show my good side to all. No more dreams of falling. I got a pick. Nose blades of broken bone. You gotta quit. Grease your wheels before you're on. Times returning. It was just New Year's Eve last night. At least we shared the burning. And we got a pair. separate beds of broken homes. And we got a pair. Die together, live alone. Okay, that was Beatles or Stones by a band called Jesco's, who is a uh, a band from Tennessee, I believe, made up of members of Wooden Wan and the Mendoza line. And it's put out by people in a position to know, or P-Optic Records, that's run by our friend Mike. I had heard the Wooden Wan album Briarwood, and it blew me away. It was like one of my favorite albums of that decade. It just was fantastic. And so I had ordered it from from him, either Bandcamp or on his website or something. And James Toth, who is the guy who's in Wooden Wand, or is Wooden Wand, I should say, he wrote me an email back and he said, hey, I'm out of town for a couple of weeks. Uh, is it okay if I don't send it to you for a few weeks and I'll put some extra stuff in? Super nice. And it was crazy to me because this record that I had absolutely fallen in love with and I couldn't stop listening to that the man who made it had kind of reached out to me and <laughs> was just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm at my parents' house. Can I send it to you in a few weeks or whatever? And, and I just thought that was so cool. So he did, he, he sent it and he 
put in a bunch of other singles, and one was this Jesco song, and it was called Beatles or Stones. You know, I wanted to play it for for this Beatles-adjacent episode, and because it's one of the first singles from Pioptic, I asked Mike Dixon and asked him, because he knows Mr. Toth, if, if it'd be okay if we played it, and they both said, yes, it'd be okay, so that's fantastic, and you should 100% go check out some Woodwand stuff. Gosh, he's got a ton of great records. Uh, Briarwood's my favorite. I like Born Bad. What was it Death Seat, the one he did on Young God Records? He's got a lot of stuff. He also has one solo album from before that. I've ordered a bunch of stuff from him, like the website he used to have. I don't know if he still does or not. And he often just throws in a bunch of extra stuff. It's really great. He threw in a really cool flexi disc and a few seven inches for me one time. He signed almost every record. Yeah. He seems like a great guy. And his records are wonderful. They can range from dark to hilarious, often in the same song. They they just kind of veer around, but a great songwriter. And he has a podcast, which I've been binging lately, called The Toth Zone, where he talks about his his childhood and on to becoming a touring musician and it is fascinating and a lot of fun and they're like 15 20 minute episodes and like i can listen to three in one sitting because it's just he's a great storyteller you can check out his Bandcamp page too where he sometimes puts up free compilations of hard to find songs sometimes some live ones he's really worth listening to before i knew anything about him i heard briarwood and i just I think it's just an amazing record, and all of his other stuff is great, too. So check it out. Uh, a great place to start would be at Pioptic, because a lot of his archives are there, and I think Briarwood was on Pioptic and Born Bad and a lot of great records. So, And then you'd be supporting good people, too. So, yeah, lots of different options. This song, again, was is called Jesco's, and it was on a single called Topless Cowgirl. And the I think either the A-side or the B-side was called Doug Yule, which is another podcast favorite. It should have been called, like our episode, Doug Yule or Angus McLeese. Then that would have been really weird. Yeah, or Dig Doug Yule. <laughs> All right, my first song for the episode is by a band called The Violin Airs, and the song is called Salt of the Earth. <laughs> the hard-working people And let's drink to the lonely affair Raise your glass for the good and evil And let's drink to the soul of the
All right, that was the Violin Airs with Salt of the Earth, the Rolling Stones song. And it was from their album, God's Creation, released in 1969 on Checker. It's the first song on the album, and it always blows me away every time I hear it. Their version is just absolutely wonderful. There isn't a ton of information about the Violin Airs themselves that I can find. They released only singles from 53 to 65, and they were all gospel And from 55 to 59, Wilson Pickett was their lead singer. And then he left for solo fame. It was about the time of this release, around 69, that they started veering towards introducing more secular songs and covers. They didn't do many covers of pop artists before then at all. And then they did Salt of the Earth. And on their next album, they covered I Shall Be Released. 
and two albums later on an album called Groovin' with Jesus, they cover Let the Sunshine In and My Sweet Lord. Now that Groovin' with Jesus album, it features one of the best funk gospel songs of all time, that lead track. Everyone should check it out. And again, that record was on Checker, which is a subsidiary of Chess Records, or was, started by the Chess Brothers just to increase airplay so they could send those off to DJs who maybe didn't know that it was chess, and they were playing a different label's songs. But anyway, that's the Violin Airs, Salt of the Earth. I absolutely love that version of that song. The next song I'm going to play is by a band called The Magic Tones, and it's a song called Together We Shall Overcome. That was The Magic Tones with Together We Shall Overcome. That was released as a 45 in 1968 on Maz Records. It's M-A-H. It was recorded in the studio one day before Martin Luther King was shot. And as soon as that happened, they put it out and pressed it very, very quickly. And it was a really big hit for 
couple months after King's death. The Magic Tones released 12 total singles. They didn't release a single LP, and they were around from 63 to 71. On most of their sessions, they were comprised of Calvin Stevenson, who later joined Undisputed Truth, Tyrone Barkley, Tyrone Douglas, and Paul Willis. All right. I guess I got one more song. This is a song called Sorry You're Sick by Ted Hawkins. Good morning, my darling, I'm telling you this To let you know that I'm sorry you're sick Though tears of sorrow won't do you no good I'd be your doctor if only I could What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet I'll buy you all that your belly can hold You can be sure you won't suffer no more I'd swim the ocean or the deepest canal To get to you, darling, just to make you well There's no place on earth I would hasten to go To cool the fever, this I want you to know What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet I'll buy you all that your belly can hold You can be sure you won't suffer no more If only the doctor would hurry and show There's quite a few places I know we could go I was okay, but these words from you Stayed in you sick and made me sick too What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet I'll buy you all that your belly can hold You can be sure you won't suffer no more Promise me, darling, that you won't die I'll get all the medicine money can buy Stick with me, baby, hold on and fight Take a good rest, I won't prolong the flight What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet I'll buy you all that your belly can hold You can be sure you won't suffer no more What do you want from the liquor store? Something sour or something sweet I'll buy you all that your belly can hold can be sure you won't no All right, that was Sorry You're Sick by Mr. Ted Hawkins. This is a song that probably a lot of you already know. It's just a foundational song to me, just of the utmost importance. And um, Joe and I were saying, we can't believe we haven't played this before. But if you haven't heard it, hopefully you enjoy it as much as I do. Ted Hawkins is is really kind of a tragic story. He was born in the South, and he heard Sam Cooke and wanted decided that he wanted to be a singer. His life was constantly plagued with getting in trouble, addiction, mental health. He'd be in and out of prison, and he just just couldn't get it together. But he spent a lot of time like busking in California on Venice Beach, and people would get to know him, and a lot of like budding musicologists would want to record him. And so eventually in 1972, this guy who was a blues producer named Bruce Bromberg uh, was able to get some songs on tape. Before anything could happen with it, Hawkins got in some legal trouble and was in and out of prison and dealing with heroin. So Bromberg just kind of lost contact. 
And then I think he relocated him at some point, like a decade later in 82, and finally got out this first record called Watch Your Step, which is where Sorry You're Sick comes from. Uh, Hawkins is usually just using his voice in an acoustic guitar. He uses an open tuning, so it's kind of a distinctive style that's somewhere between country and soul and folk. It's a very unique sound. The pathos in his voice is, is incredible. So eventually he got this this record out, Watch Your Step, and then it didn't sell anything, but critics loved it. It was a great album. And he, he again, would get in trouble, kind of fall out, and it wouldn't be till much later that he, I think in 1994, got his major label debut out the next hundred years with that album, and he was 57 years old at that point, and then a few months after that came out, he unfortunately died. He was much bigger in Europe, like so many bands. They have a huge following in Europe, and they come back to America, and they can't make any money. So if you do not know Ted Hawkins, you should go listen to his music. It is beautiful and entrancing and as tragic as the man, but it is some of the best music, and Sorry You're Sick is is one of the songs that just kind of follows me wherever I go. So I was able to get a reissue that came out recently. The original's from 82 on Rounder, but they put out a reissue, and I'm glad I have it. All right, it's time to settle up on some trivia. So, Joe, you want to uh, play those songs again, and I'll take my guess at the song, artist, and theme, right? Yep, that is it. I'm going to play seven clips. And what I'd like for you to do is tell me who the artist is, what's the name of the song, and how are they linked. Okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. I love the words you wrote to me, but that was bloody yesterday. I can't survive on what you send every time you need a friend. Track three. There's nothing Track four. Track five. Track six. Track seven. Okay, hopefully that wasn't too terrible for anybody out there. What do you have for those songs? 
Okay, I feel pretty good about this quiz. The first song is Bo Diddley and Who Do You Love? That's it. The second song is another song that's one of my favorites of all time, Billy Bragg with A New England. Yes. The third song is Bruce Springsteen. It's definitely off Born in the USA. I think it's my hometown. It is. Yep. Okay. That was like the 17th single off that record, right? Didn't, was yeah, that? there were more singles than there were songs on the album, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fourth song was uh, definitely Prince Sister. Yes. About one of the only songs the side of Will Oldham about that theme. I, I got the clip in there, too, of just... Yes, sure did. You just hammered it home for us. Okay, the fifth song I'm not entirely sure of. I'm pretty sure it's The Stooges. I think it's 1969. It is. Okay. The sixth song is Mr. Richard Starkey himself. If I'm not mistaken, that's that John Lennon song. The song that John Lennon wrote for him called I'm the Greatest. It is, yes. Isn't that what it... Okay. Yep. Last song is Jackson Brown, Running on Empty. That's it. You nailed it. Got everything. Hear my dad waving his fist in the air somewhere. You got all of them. What's the theme? The theme, I think, is that the narrator at some point in the song mentions his age. That is it. It took me a minute because I knew all the songs. So I felt like I had a good chance of getting it. And I started going through them. Like, who do you love? I kind of go through the lyrics on my head. And then a New England, it starts out with, I'm 21 years, but I won't leave her alone. You know, that. Um, when I wrote the song. Now. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Then I went back through Bo Diddley, and I was like, oh, I do think he mentions his age. And then I kind of went through the songs. Like, I don't remember Hometown, but Prince definitely talks about his age. Mm-hmm. And in 1969, I think he says how old he is. So kind of fell in from there. And I made, like, I, I would have not have got that from just Ringo or, well, I mean, that whole song is kind of about how old he is. Yep. That's a great a great quiz idea. I loved it. When I figured it out, I was really happy that I figured it out. So, Got a couple people we want to say hi to. Um, the first one is Steve. And Steve wrote us a nice email or message. Steve is, uh, I hope he doesn't mind us saying this, he's, he's a soldier in the Australian Army. And um, he has to drive like some crazy amount, six hours every weekend to get to his barracks. And he says that he likes to put on our podcast to help keep him company on those long rides across Australia. So, hi, Steve. Thanks for listening. And um, yes, if we talk about some of our rare records, you have any rare records? I have a few, definitely. <laughs> um, I hope Steve was excited about us playing Rolf Harris and not <laughs> irritated by it. I wonder how Morris feels about Rolf Harris. He seems to just enjoy music in general doesn't seem to have a hateful bone in his body we didn't make as many australian jokes as we usually do when we no well there's a soldier there who would maybe hurt us (laughs) apparently for bad mouthing australia Uh, which we do just as a joke like ringo (laughs) we bad mouth everything the only thing that we bad mouth that we mean it is billy joel clearly or in the eagles and journey I guess. So there was a lot that we really hate. Part of part of the fun is just teasing out which, which things we're making fun of because we hate and which things we make fun of because we love. As far as rare records go, I've got, I have quite a few 45s that are pretty hard to find. For 
LPs, I have a couple that I think are pretty rare. I've got the Bob Dylan album that's called Zimmerman Ten of Swords, which is pretty hard to find. And there's a Mountain Goats album called Come Come to the Sunset Tree, I think, with a hand-painted cover, which is pretty hard to find. And it's um, all acoustic versions of his Sunset Tree album. What about you? I'm trying to think of other ones. Probably one of the rarest records I have is a record by the Stroke Band called Green and Yellow. And it was a private press record that's got, I think we've played a song. One of the very, very first episodes, I think we played a song. It's a super small private press. And then the band members went on to do be in some bigger bands and be somewhat famous. So it has a little bit of notoriety and it's a great record, but they're from my area where I live. And, and my friend who worked at the record store was able, she was able to get a, get a copy and she, she got it for me. So that's probably my rarest record. Joe and I are not really like, we're not so weird about like going after specific rarity type stuff. I mean, we, I think we just, if you record collect long enough, you get some things just kind of because, but it's a little bit different now than it was when we started. There's another record that I have that I've only played it a couple times because I have other copies of it. It's the Velvet Underground and Nico on Verve Records with almost all of the banana on it that I found somewhere. But otherwise, yeah, like like you said, that's something that's just, I was just such a huge fan. I wanted, I just really had been looking for a record with that actual banana on it. So otherwise, I don't really go out of my way to find records that are collectible necessarily. I just want to buy records that I know I will listen to. Anyway, Steve, hopefully that answers some questions. Um, well, sometime we could talk more about our collections, but we we just kind of play what we like and... I don't know. So anyways, Steve, thank you for listening and thank you for keeping Australia safe. All right. Uh, I want to say hi to Pantheon for us, Joe. Sure. We, as always, want to say thank you to Pantheon, which is our podcast network. They have been absolutely wonderful with us and so kind because we took on awful long time between a couple episodes there. And they have just consistently been great for us. They have a stable of music podcasts. It's incredible. You can really lose yourself pretty easily going through and just looking at things. And you're going to find a lot of stuff. There are interview podcasts. There are music opinion podcasts about certain albums that people just really like. There's a podcast just about Bob Dylan. Anyone who goes looking through those podcast the list that they have is going to find something even if you're not much of a music fan you're going to find something there's a lot of great stuff on there it's very proud to be part of that group absolutely as long as we're talking about podcasts if if you get through pantheon and listen to all those couple other podcasts um we mentioned a toth zone you should definitely check that out and then there's another great podcast that we've kind of been connected with recently called Low Profile with Mark Lee Morrison. He is uh, a musician, and he's in several bands. Uh, Laser Zeppelin is a record I have by by him, that his band, that's fantastic. But his show is very much in line with ours, but he does interviews with some of the um, 
most out there, experimental, and unique uh, musicians. He's interviewed Lavender Country, the guy from Old Time Religion. And his most recent episode was with uh, the guy from Negative Land. Good inter- He's a really good interview, and he, he gives a lot of space for the artist to kind of talk. I really enjoyed listening to those recently, going through those back catalogs pretty quick, too. And Mike Dixon, who we talk about all the time for the show, we're kind of cooking on something that maybe low profile on us we'll, we'll work on together. And a cult hero that I think between Mike Dixon, Joe and me, and Mark Lee, we, uh, we all would like to do an episode on somebody very deserving. So hopefully that will come out um, sometime, and we've kind of got some behind-the-scenes working on that. But uh, all those recommendations hopefully keep you uh, satisfied with podcast for a while. So, uh, yeah, take a listen to some of those. You have any social media? We do. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a page on Facebook, very easy to find. And if you'd like, send us an email. Our email address is podcast at gmail.com. So check us out on social media, send us an email. Um, as always, go uh, support a record store or a record label or an artist. We've given you um, a few to choose from today that would all be very worthy. And I'll post some things on our website of, to get you to some of those artists that we talked about today. But overall, we just appreciate you listening. And um, if you are Ringo Starr or one of Ringo Starr's family members, we apologize. We, we, we love you, Ringo. We really do. I'm sure he's listening and that he listened this far in. <laughs> Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. It'll make it funny if you had the rim shot. No, it won't. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.